Welcome to the Pork and Feed the Birds. My name's Tom Tanneke. I record this episode, as ever, on unceded Indigenous lands. Respects to elders past and present on whose lands I record this podcast. Gratitude. I want to acknowledge that it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. This episode, I'll be speaking to Slack Bastard about the Lad Society, an actual fascist group that organises and has spaces in Australia. Uh, Slack Bastard has recently released some information on their latest happenings. We hadn't heard too much from them since they had last had their last gym space in Cheltenham in Victoria and in Ashfield in Sydney. And that doesn't mean that they went away, though. They never went anywhere. So we'll be catching up on the latest happenings, and it's a pleasure to speak to Slack Bastard, who is in and of his own right a fucking legend. So that's good. Although what's not good is that he's insisted that I eat fucking musk sticks for the entire episode. Just because of some random thing, you know, where I have fairly pointed out that they're a terrible mistake, a terrible Australian mistake, and one that should be, you know, erased from our history. Some people fixate on statues, I fixate on musk sticks. So it's a real shame that he asked me to do that. Last episode, I spoke to Cam Smith, who's actually on the Yenar Passeran podcast with Slack Bastard um, that they record weekly if, if, that you should be listening to on 3CR. I said last fortnight that I would be reading a couple of knock-knock jokes from Cam's ebook released through Kindle called Hot Knockers. So let me do that. Um, knock-knock. Who's there? Zoe. Zoe who? Zoe Diak Killer. Oh no. Goodbye. Yeah, you see, I yeah. Look, there's a, there's there's often some some lengthy remonstrations after each knock knock joke. Usually all in caps in this book. I do recommend it, but I also don't know why I'm recommending it. Knock knock, who's there? Pasta. Pasta who? Pasta green beans, please. This one is for if you are having a last meal with a condemned prisoner. Obviously, don't do it if they've been denied beans for fear they'll convert them into a stringy shiv and escape. That would be hella insensitive. And the word hella is bolded. Knock, knock. Who's there? Macca. Macca who? Macca. Um, it was seriously just on the tip of my tongue. Macrame? No. Oh, this is embarrassing. Macabre. That's it. These jokes are a bit macabre, aren't they? I recognise that this book, Hot Knockers by Cam Smith, available on the Kindle store, I recognise that it comes from the heart and there's a lot of stream of consciousness speaking in here, again, all in caps, but... You get this lingering feeling with some of these jokes, particularly where, you know, he appears to write out having forgotten the, 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 the punchline to the joke. You may be having your time wasted. Sometimes it's the delight of the journey and not the destination that keeps us listening or keeps us reading in this case. Here we go. Knock, knock. Who's there? Thea. Thea who? The angry readers who bought a book titled Hot Knockers expecting ribald lowest common denominator fun times 
and have so far got none, their fury is righteous. Thanks, Cam. Onwards and upwards. War Room Pandemic. Here's your host, Thomas Q. Tanneke. I'm speaking with Slack Bastard. Um, aren't I, Slack Bastard? You are, Tom. Hello, mate. How are you going? Oh, not too bad. How are you? I'm I'm good, but I I want to acknowledge that in going into this conversation about the lad society, that you've set um, an unreasonable condition on the conversation. Well, I requested, in fact, insisted yeah. that if this was to take place, you would be also eating a delicious lolly. Yeah, you certainly didn't request it, mate. Um, if it was a request, I would have said no, um, but you unreasonably and stubbornly demanded that I eat my sticks. Look, for, you know, I mean, if you only ever listen to, to this podcast and don't pay attention to me yammering on my Facebook page, you wouldn't know about my um, antipathy, you know, my feelings towards musk sticks. I don't like them. I don't, you know, I just think, I just think they're... I just think I don't, I don't like them. So what you're saying is you have a an irrational prejudice. Are you trying to paint me as a bigot? Is that is that? <laughs> I'm not painting you as a bigot, Tom. I think you're doing that very well yourself. Yeah, fucking. Look, I've agreed to this irrational demand because I did want to speak about the subject of the land society, you know, with you. My concern, though, is don't you think, given the weighty subject matter, of this conversation, that it's slightly unedifying for me to be, you know, interrupting each question by eating a portion of a musk stick. Don't, don't you think that belies the... Oh, you know, Tom... Um... No, look, I, I'm a man of my word. I'll fucking munch on a musk stick or two as we talk. I suppose I should frame this as well because you and I have known each other for years and I imagine that everyone who's listening to this should, you know, would or certainly should know of you and your work. But you've been working to document the movements and the latest happenings of the far right for a very long time now, haven't you, Slacky? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the years pass by, Tom, but I guess... Uh, via the blog, I've yeah. been doing it for about the last 15 years or so. Um, and, yep. yeah, I, I, I think, you know, there's, I don't know, 3,000-plus posts on the blog and I've written a few other things for other publications over the years. Um, but it's, you know, it's um, pretty constant work. Um Yeah, so, yeah, pretty intensively for quite a few years now. And I suppose that work changes, as it has to do, when what the far right is doing changes, right? You know what I mean? Like you, the way that you looked at them when they were nationalist alternative in the earlier part of the decade versus when they suddenly had the limelight big time with the Patriot movement, you know, your work would have been cut out for you in a very different yeah, way. Yeah, I think the, um, the emergence of Reclaim was a pivotal moment. Uh, and the other interesting thing about that, but more generally, I suppose, in terms of far-right organising is the emergence of social media um, platforms like Facebook and YouTube, which when I began uh, didn't exist, really. I think YouTube might have been around, but I don't think Facebook was. Um, and they've, um, you know, not only 
well, they've, they've in a sense come to monopolise social communication. So, I mean, the other thing I'd add is that, um, you know, 15 years ago, uh, a lot of the far right was publishing on blogs. Uh, there was, you know, a whole world that was social media. That's been almost entirely eclipsed now uh, by Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and so on. So where this material is um, appearing, how people are organising has changed. But in terms of reclaim, um, that was the first time in quite a few years, like possibly decades even, where you had... Um, what I'd describe as a kind of proto-fascist movement emerge and take to these streets uh, of cities and towns across Australia in considerable numbers. And what I read that as being evidence of was um, the emergence of a sentiment that had been percolating for some years prior to that and really could only be understood in terms of the... um, you know, the war on terror and the identification of Islam and Muslims as being a, a foreign enemy. Um, so if you look at, you know, between 2010 and 2015, there were things like the Australian Defence League and the um, Patriots Defence League, Nationalist Alternative emerged at that point. And it's interesting to note in terms of yeah. Nationalist Alternative, it had its origins in anti-mosque agitation in Williamstown in the uh, late 2000s. I, I guess what has um, bound all these forces, which can be quite, you know, um, diverse in many ways, is um, antipathy to uh, Muslims as opposed to mustics. No, that's a good point. Actually, you've just reminded me before we get on to. I, ne- I never even opened the packet. I'm I'm more into antipathy against mustics. That's my. That's my. That's my personal brand of fascism. <laughs> One of the I've neglected this uh, domain, Tom. I'm glad you've introduced it to me. This uh, anti-mustic thing. This can be leveraged against me by the far right. You know, yeah, I, I'm I'm, I'm uh, drinking a beer as we talk as well, and I'm. Just realise I should never have opened that. <laughs> Just take rain. one of the mustics and pop it into your can and see what happens. Oh, I reckon it'll fizz up, hey. I'm not doing that, <laughs> you know. This is undermining my credibility. All right, all right. <laughs> In fact, no, look, all right, I'll have a bite. Um, um, oh, God. <laughs> While I eat this shit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, you know, I've been reading your content since I got into active anti-fascism in 2016 and, you know, you'd always educated me more than anyone, first and foremost, about the history of those people through, you know, I did that obviously as I recommended everyone else do by going through the history of your blog. You know, I suppose we, we started started talking probably over that year or the next or what have you, and then, but then we got to watch the rise of perhaps I suppose the next permutation of grassroots, for want of a better word, fascists in in um in 2017 when we saw uh, the Lad Society begin. What was the birth of the Lad Society? How how do we situate that? Well, I frame it in terms of the collapse of the United Patriots Front. Mm. So the United Patriots Front formed in uh, 2015, mid-2015, and it thought of itself and presented itself to the public and to its, I guess, fan base as the uh, more militant, uh, wing or the political vanguard of Reclaim Australia. So it became immediately apparent to those who supported Reclaim that, the, that when they assembled in public in Melbourne and Sydney and everywhere else, they were met with uh, counter-protests. 
um, yeah. which led to some argy-bargy. Um, and essentially the UPF formed out of, as did the Lad Society, out of the um, Nationalist Alternative. So uh, its leading figures, Cottrell and uh, Sewell, were associated with Nationalist Alternative in Melbourne. Uh, mm. I think they saw an opportunity here to... Uh, try and create a group that would bring together, you know, the most uh, militant elements within the movement, which almost entirely, I think, well, yeah, with one or two exceptions, young men, uh, as well as some yeah. older lads, and they were going to um, take the fight to the communists who were trying to disrupt, reclaim. Um, it was also, I mean, I think it was in 2015, it was not long after... Um, Cottrell, Blair Cottrell was uh, released from prison. Um, he had, you know, done various crimes and served a short term. Um, yeah. So the first time I became aware of his existence was April 4, 2015, when he gave an address to the Reclaim um, gathering at Fed Square. And he was a, he was surrounded by other members of National Alternative. There was maybe a dozen of them also present, a number of whom I'd recognised. Uh, yeah. but had not recognised him. And so I think Cottrell and Sewell put their heads together along with some others and thought here's an opportunity for us to intervene in this um, movement, um, to assume leadership and to yeah. try and uh, bolster their own particular flavour of white nationalist politics through the yeah. UPF. And it was fairly successful um, mm. in the sense that when, it, when Facebook eventually closed the UPF page down, I think it had something in the order of 160,000 likes or follows. So it was establishing quite an audience on Facebook and was and did and had some success in attracting the attention and support of the uh, otherwise ordinary mums and dads um, totally. and, and was able to capitalise upon the relative degree of, I think, political naivety among many of those who were chiefly animated by, on the one hand, uh, hatred for Muslims and on the other love for Australia. Um, mm. And the UPF was intended to bring together the more militant elements give them more greater political coherence. Um, but then once Facebook pulled the plug, that was more or less over. That was more or less it for the UPF. So at that point, I think um, the boys decided that, well, we've had this several years of agitation, of obtaining an audience. Uh, what do we do now? And there was so there was a degree of um, strategic thinking that was taking place. And essentially what, did they, what they wanted to do was to consolidate a fascist cadre through the establishment of uh, social centres, and that's what became the Lad Society. And at the time, it was presented as, you know, uh, a fraternal organisation, men only, yeah, yeah, um, no chicks allowed, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but to and and they had a kind of what they wanted to do was to train young men so that they were physically able, and also to um, ideologically train them, so train them in doctrine. So physical and mental health, um, drawing upon a long tradition of fascist organising mm. and uh, Nazi doctrine. Yeah, because at one, t at one time, and certainly this is the way they'd shaped their pretty scarce online presence at the start, uh, you know, in one sense it's, it's like a gym space for young huffy white dudes to, you know, turn Ubermensch, get yoked, get shepherded into security gigs there and go to the classes and what have you and associate with people and learn about 
fascism. But, you know, at the, at the same time, that was only meant to be the, the conduit, organ, you know, through which you, you, you become part of that fascist fraternity, right? Yeah, and I, I think it was also speaking to a need to develop their own uh, physical infrastructure. So to have, you know, places, um, not just online, but in real life, where you could meet in relative security, meet other men of um, similar attitudes and begin to network in a way that was more uh, concrete and they hope uh, substantial um, and, and represents kind of like a, a foundational attempt to establish a proper political movement. And it modelled yeah. itself on similar groupings overseas, especially, um, you know, Casa Pound, in Rome, um, a long-established uh, fascist squat uh, that has been able to s attract the support of hundreds and thousands of uh, young fascists over there. Um, but there's, there's many other examples right across the world, across history, um, of movements wanting to develop their own structure, which is independent, which they control, um, as a stepping stone towards, if you listen to Cottrell's uh, or sorry, uh, Thomas Hill's speeches on the subject. It's about creating their own parallel uh, political and social structures, ones that are going to sustain members through employment, through housing, through education, everything else. Um, and, you know, it's it's um, these are modest beginnings, but that's their kind of grand vision. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but I think it, you know, it needs to be stated very clearly for people who aren't quite aware that Tom Sewell very explicitly meant these more um, uh, in the shadows or out of the limelight style, uh, a group like this, such as Aid Society, deliberately intended it to, to have learnt off the the failures of the Patriot Movement, as in he saw that the rally attention and the kind of internal competitiveness of the Patriot Movement wasn't getting his white supremacist, white nationalist politics anywhere, so he wanted to revise strategy to, to suit. I mean, I, you know, I recall that he's said as such, and that was a, a great reason for, I guess, the relative privacy of the lad society. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. You're, they're in a tricky situation in the sense that there's a need for... Uh, to maintain security, um, to avoid infiltration and disruption by various elements, whether they're state agents or, you know, anti-fascists or whatever. At the same time, there needs to be some degree of openness and uh, being public. So um, listeners may or may not remember, but in I think it was early, uh, or late 2017, early 2018, uh, the lads and the True Blue crew organised a meeting at their uh, headquarters in Cheltenham. And that was ostensibly yeah. in order to um, respond to the media campaign about African gangs. So yeah. they were able to identify here's a matter of concern. Um, this is a campaign that's being, push being pushed by the tabloids. African gangs are preventing you from, you know, going out to dinner. Uh, the police, it was alleged, had signally failed to address this. It's uh, for boys like them to step into the breach and say, no, we're going to protect our communities against these rampaging gangs. And that's how it was pushed. And so it was another example of an attempt to capitalise upon an issue that had obtained, you know, fairly wide distribution and was a matter of public concern and to present themselves as being representing some kind of solution. And it was interesting yeah. at the time. I mean, I knew 
full well that they were meeting at this, uh, the Lad Society. Um, yeah. the Channel 7 presented it as though it was something else, you know, entirely some kind of, you know, guardian angels or I don't know what. Um, but that's precisely what they're banking on in a sense is the ability to identify issues, intervene publicly in them in a way that um, boosts their appeal uh, to, the, to, you know, the normies. Um, yeah. And once those normies become familiar with the group, they can slowly be acculturated into more systemic forms of fascist thinking. And they're fairly yeah. explicit about that. I mean, it's not obscure. You just have to listen to what they say and, and read what they write to understand that's what they're doing. But many of the people who would have been attracted to it were, you know, young guys who had this idea that there was these, uh, you know, rampaging gangs. No one was doing anything about it. Um, I'm going to, and I'm going to join with these guys to do it. Yeah, yeah. So now I suppose it, historically they had their you know, gym or they worked towards it after they'd announced themselves. They had their gym space. Uh, I think in 2018 they lost that gym space. Is that correct? I think it was a, around that period. I think it was in existence for between about a year and a year and a half. After and, a while, they had a fair bit of public pressure, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the location was exposed. There were various people in the local community who responded with some alarm. Uh, I understand they made representations to council and other local authorities saying, you know, what's going on? Is this uh, lawful activity? I'm concerned. I don't want a group of fascists or Nazis in the neighbourhood using it mm. as a base of operations. And I think eventually the, the lease was, you know, uh, terminated. I don't know the exact circumstances under which the project folded, but yeah. I think also yeah. there was some sense in which it having been exposed, that turned out not to be a great thing. Um, yeah. And there were other rumours going around about them antagonising other elements who were hostile, but for other reasons. Um, so that, that space closed down. Yeah. Uh, then they obtained this new one uh, in Roeville, uh, not mm. that far from the old one. Um, and that was done in relative secrecy. So there was no publicity surrounding it. Um, the, you know, and, and they also instituted internal measures to more properly vet membership. And, yeah, and the problem so there is... I mean, it's a lot harder to get your way into their circles than it once was. Yeah. I mean, you know, they've instituted various processes and, and lots of groups on the right do this. Um, Antipodean resistance was another example. Yeah. Um, or there are overseas-based groups that do the same thing. They'll attract support. Someone will message them, say, I'm interested. They'll, uh, you know, un they'll undergo some basic scrutiny uh, and then they'll be invited to take further steps into the organisation. Uh, and it's intended to ensure that the people who join are, you know, fit with those who are already members to try and, um, you know, keep out police or, you know, other elements they don't want in the club. The problem is the more you resort to those sorts of measures, the more you make it difficult for people to join, the less people are likely to join and the less people are actually yeah, going yeah, to. Yeah. But yeah. the other thing they've done is they've drawn upon their existing social networks. So, you know, Cottrell has a, is a bodybuilder. He has many friends in the gyms around town. Saul is a, you know, weightlifter or powerlifter. Yeah. Uh, others work in the security industry, and those are the kinds of young men that they want to attract. So 
fit and capable, um, over which is laid a kind of um, obsession with gun culture and, mm. um, you know, self-defence through um, the use of deadly force and so on. So there are yeah. all these kinds of pre-existing political and social networks which individual members have different relationships to, who've established friendships or acquaintances. So it's about trying to draw those people into these into the lads and, you know, more likely the National Socialist Network. I suppose we should mention as well that this has not just been a Melbourne thing because at some point there, uh, there was a gym in Ashfield in Sydney that opened up. So there was a, uh, um, which was the subject, I think, of an ABC background briefing investigation by Alex Mann at one point. Yeah. Um, and there was a there were there were tentative forays into a Gold Coast space, weren't there? I believe. I, I think. Well, they've claimed a membership right across the country, yeah. uh, in every major city and a small number of towns. Uh, the only two concrete, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, concrete spaces that have been exposed thus far have been in Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. Um, but it's perfectly possible uh, that they've obtained. Well, certainly established groups or networks in a whole range of other locations and also establish something like uh, the centres they have or did have in Melbourne and Sydney. Mm-hmm. Now, as we've already sort of touched on, I mean, it doesn't really just stop at everyone, you know, getting ripped and sweating it out with other Nazis in a gym, does it? I've heard, like, you know, videos of Tom Sewell speaking to close groups, you know, Facebook and what have you. They, they, they do want to plot towards having little all-white enclaves, don't they? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what they're trying to do is concentrate, and it's um, this is not novel, it's a, it's a long-standing practice, yeah. um, but to bring together like-minded individuals in specific geographical areas uh, organised around social spaces. So, I mean, 10 or more years ago, you had a similar phenomenon in Perth. Uh, one of the moderators of Stormfront Down Under, um, Stormfront being one of the, was the number one, uh, you know, white nationalist, national socialist website on earth. Yes. Um, one of its Perth-based moderators uh, took up this idea called uh, Pioneer Little Europe, and it is essentially a white ethnic enclave. I mean, he had particular ideas about where to situate this in Perth. Um, in the United States, where I think the term was coined, uh, the northwest uh, of the country is understood to be, you know, a white man's land, and there's been um, various groups and movements over several decades who've encouraged members and supporters to relocate in these small communities. Um, mm. So it's it's kind of it's um, not novel, but it's relatively novel for Australia, and certainly yeah. unlike the pioneers of Europe of the early well, late two thousands, early twenty tens, uh, it's attracted a great deal more support, and that support's been derived from the activities of the lads, and before that, the UPF among you know the Reclaim Australia uh, movement, so which attracted the support of thousands. So if you have that as a kind of base, for them it's about then proceeding to sort the wheat from the chaff, determine who's, you know, really in a position to engage in this project, to recruit them to it, and to ensure that their participation is useful and productive. Um, and it's also guided by an ideology. Um, and you'll find, you'll find parallel movements 
you know, uh, throughout Europe, in, in the Americas. Um, yeah. What, what's interesting about it is this is, or even Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, you know, Carl Chapman was wanting to uh, and spent quite a few years uh, raising funds to establish uh, a land base, which was a, a rural property to which he and all his friends could, uh, with their families. So in the long term, they have an idea, you know, the group consists of young men, but they have an idea that they want to, you know, obtain wives, obtain children, obtain family support, render it a more um, communal space. Uh, space. That's something that they're struggling with because they're mostly blokes in the young twen- in their you know early to mid twenties. Uh, there's relatively few. There's a handful who are middle aged, have their own families, and the problem also is if you look at a group like um, you know Blood and Honor or the Hammerskins. I mean, those guys are mostly middle aged blokes with jobs, with partners, with children, um, mm. and, and they're understood and they are vulnerable in that sense. They've got something to lose. Um, yeah. The young fellows who are joining the lads don't have those things, you know. Um, they don't have the, the, the you know, um, their better halves telling them to pull their heads in or, you know, you've got to keep this job so you can pay the rent so your children have somewhere to stay or that sort of thing. They're largely free of those concerns. And they're the ones who form the kind of core of the group. I mean, I I recall hearing Tom Sewell talk about what he perceived as setting up a fifth column, you know, that is to say separate columns or groups of power within a country who align with its perceived enemies in war or outside of a war. And I think in his case that means that, you know, we're all commies who control the country, uh, the prevailing discourse here is communist or what have you, and he's, you know, white warriors are going to build power until one day we all fall to bits and they can seize power off of us. And in that sense, they're kind of accelerationists, aren't they? Yeah, I mean... Um, Self-avowed. I, I, mean, I, I think he's described himself as one before. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's an element in their thinking. Um, but they're also adaptive. Um, so they have to, like any other political actor, adapt to the prevailing circumstances. And while they may want to accelerate political and social decomposition. Um, They can't depend on it. So in the meantime, what they're trying to do is establish an infrastructure which will sustain them over time um, so that when the moment comes, they'll be ready to seize it. And they don't know, uh, you know, when that might be, um, but, you know, that they want to be prepared. And also it's worth noting the number of them are coming from um, military backgrounds. They have some formal training in uh, you know basic strategy and tactics, um, gun usage, a whole range of other skills, martial skills, which yeah. um, you know uh, if you want to conduct some kind of uh, you know guerrilla campaign or engage in some protracted form of armed struggle, having those skills is is quite valuable. <clears throat> and excuse me. And and the other aspect of that is there's been a concerted effort to enter into the security industry. Um, so a number of its members work in the security industry. Um, yeah. Being it, it provides you with uh, useful skills, uh, gives you legal status. Um, you know, if you're working security, you have a valid reason to um, have a be a licensed firearm owner, for example. Um, it, and it provides a you know effective employment as well. And you're deploying those skills that you want to you want to. Uh, deploy in other circumstances should it be necessary. 
So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I abhor Nazi ideology. I reject it entirely. Um, one of the concerning things about the lads, apart from their recent uh, turn to neo-Nazism after some debate within the group, is mm. that they, um, as well as, you know, uh, the fact that the Christchurch killer was attempted to be recruited into the group, uh, the oh, fact yeah. that, uh, you know, Blair Cottrell, uh, the killer described him as his emperor. He was, you know, a kind of um, an icon. Um it also tends to attract, you know, people who, uh, especially the younger elements, they, they, they enter into it with an idea that they have something to prove to themselves yes. and to others. And that's, that's, a, um, that's a recipe for disaster as far as okay. I can tell. Okay, so let's get into the, the, the people a little bit. Um, first of all, is yeah, you've already identified, used to be involved with Nationals Alternative, Blair's former UPF buddy, sort of turned Don Dada of the group, I think, um, Tom Sewell. I've also seen him talk about what I see is like looks maxing shit. Do you know what looks maxing is? Uh, no. What, what's looks maxing? Um, it's like an intersection with, with like, like sometimes with Nazis who are quite fastidious and obsessed with their their, their masculinised appearance and, and, and the kind of incel adjacent looks maxing community which is people who are obsessed with maxing out their looks you know in this kind of like you know clinical sort of way like he was banging on about here's another term mewing once do you know what that is sorry what yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. mewing is where you you chew on some shit to make your jawline look bigger so you look like more of a man Ah, okay. Like, um, I can't remember what it is, but it's like something you just sit there chewing, and it's the the act of like exercise style chewing to make your jawline look bigger, so you therefore like like um look more, more, more you're more of a man to other guns. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I guess that's that's both um, you know, their own vanity, uh, and, and having a certain idea of how they themselves feel most comfortable appearing to others, and some degree of calculation. I mean, I, I do think it's significant that um, if you read the comments that were made in relation to Cottrell, there were many young boys who looked to him and his his physicality as a model that they wanted to emulate. And and so, you know, and they, they deploy that, you know. Um, and also I think there's, a, again, if you go back to, you know, original fascist and Nazi ideology, there was a cult of the body and and a a commitment to collectively disciplining the body in conformity with political requirements. So, and and to depart from that is understood to be a form of moral and cultural degeneracy. So, Mm. you know, know, fat guys are bad um, because they're, you know, failing to ensure that the Aryan race, and we're talking about Aryan fat guys, I guess, um, you know, reproduces itself. Any any form of weakness, whether it's mental or physical, is despised, and they apply to some extent, although they, they're often hypocrites in this regard, they apply the same kind of mentality to their own bodies. Um, yeah. And, the, you know, I mean, it's also the case, you know, it was a running joke during the Second World War, um, I can't remember exactly what the term is, but it was like, um, you know, a blonde like Hitler, um, you know, trim like uh, Goering and, uh, you know, tall like uh, Goebbels or whatever. So, I mean, the fact that someone doesn't approximate that Aryan ideal doesn't prevent yeah. someone from becoming a leader. No. Uh, 
but very often the movement, it's a means of disciplining a movement, of ensuring conformity, and draws upon military training as well, where yeah. the whole idea is to strip away someone's individuality so that they become better able to fit into a core, to yeah. not only receive but obey orders in a collective fashion. So it's very much drawing upon military ideals as well. I suppose you can't really um, look down too hard on Tom Sewell for chewing uh, obsessively <laughs> on in order to get, you know, things, you know, even if he doesn't want to, just to... Mm. No, I know, I know, is is I know the taste that. improving, Tom? No, it's not improving. Oh, okay. I'm sorry about that. Like, okay, I mean, we're not, we're not going to... We're going to have a come to Jesus moment for me and Mustics right now. All um, right, all right. Just, just to clarify, I don't, they don't make me feel sick or nothing. I just, I reject them, and I, I, I intellectually, I reject them wholesale. Another, another person, young Jacob Hurtsen. Yeah. What's the relationship here between the Land Society and what was the Antipodean resistance, but what is now, I think, the National Socialist? Are they one and the same, or is that that kind of like public person's private wing thing that you were talking about before? Antipodean resistance formed, uh, well, it was inspired by the UPF. So if you read the uh, publications of its founders, there were two key uh, individuals who founded it um, in Melbourne, not Jacob Hersant, two other uh, young men, um, and they were attracted to the UPF uh, and participated in a number of its events, but and, and understood and stated that Cottrell and Sewell, well, yes, they're our comrades, they're fellow Nazis, but they're pursuing a different road, which is to disavow their politics um, yeah. in order to cultivate an audience. We're not in that position. We're not public figures, uh, yeah. but we're Nazis. Um, so they through forums like uh, Iron March, uh, a notorious... Uh, neo-Nazi website. They gathered mm. on that site. They looked to the UK and groups like National Action and thought, why can't we do that here? Um, yeah. So it, it developed in, well, um, in loose collaboration with the UPF, but independently of it, among a slightly different crew um, mm. of young men who were determined Nazis and who thrilled to National Action. What they wanted to do was to to dress up, to appear in public, to pose, to take photos, and uh, and also to appeal to a kind of uh, an audience of men in their early 20s and teenagers as well. So if you go to Iron March, Iron March, uh, I think it was this year or last year, um, it was all the material on the site was captured and published. And so you can go online now and you can look through the 60 or 70 or so members from Australia and read their posts and read their internal messaging, what they were sending to one another. And yeah. you'll find, a, a, you know, a, a small number of teenage boys who, are, you know, describe their own passage from being, I don't know, relatively apolitical or thinking of themselves as being conservative, discovering this material online, thrilling to it, uh, wanting to be someone and to be someone who was, you know, acknowledged as being, um, you know, terrifying or, you know, influential in some capacity yeah. and yeah. being attracted to it. So it, it met their, I guess, psycho the psychological criteria for membership in one of these groups. And Jacob Hersant, I mean, he was, um, it was interesting, actually. I first came across him when he was uh, out stickering 
uh, Carlton or Fitzroy with antipodean resistance uh, material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone happened to notice and took a photo. <laughs> took a photo of him, huh? yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And um, it wasn't too much longer after that that it was able to, I was, myself and others were, put, were able to put two and two together and identify him. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of like, I guess, you know, he, he's also emerged and been quoted in the media recently as being the spokesperson or spokesman for the National Socialist Network. Mm, so that's his, that's his baby, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there are um, others. I mean, you know, in terms of its relationship to the Lad Society, uh, last year uh, there was debate and discussion within the Lads about, um, yes, we've got this, you know, social centre, but it's not a public thing. We need some kind of um, public-facing group through which we can, you know, uh, publicise our message and, and yeah. attract potential recruits. So initially they were going to call it the European Australian Movement, which on the face of it, conforms to a whole range of other, you know, now defunct groups that, um, you know, rights for whites. Um, you know, if the blacks can have their civil rights associations, well, why can't the whites? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, without, without directly addressing things like the Jewish question, you know. Um, in other words, um, a front group. Um, yeah. And my understanding is that there was some debate and discussion within the group about that. Some were in favour and some were against. Uh, the ones who were against, who wanted to establish an explicitly white nationalist, neo-national uh, socialist or neo-Nazi grouping, they won the argument. And that's how the National Socialist Network emerged. Oh, and obviously okay. with the collapse of Antipodean resistance, you've got, you know, uh, scores of young Nazis who, you know, no longer for various reasons are able or want to identify with the group, they've got to go somewhere. So they've drawn in uh, her scient and others associated with the group into the lads and into the National Socialist Network. He used to make me laugh. He used to be not half bad at banter, even though obviously I'm no fan of his politics. He used to pop on the page and he used to be pretty decent as banter. I remember sharing this meme I'd made at one point, which was like, oh, my, I had a dude like crying in a gym and it was like, oh, my body is weak, my dick doesn't work, I can't save the West. Yeah. And you get like those kids, including Jacob, would come on them there and they'd go, oh, this but unironically. And I'd be yeah. like, oh, my highest aspiration was to get these cunts to say things like that because I'd be like, no, 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 this ironically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, yeah. but he, he seems to have abandoned any sense of humour and that's the real shame. That's the real pipeline with national socialism or fascism is that you become this cunt that takes yourself way too fucking seriously, eh? Like his screeds on that website are just terrible writing don't you do, have you read them uh i've read some and you know it, it, they resemble you know uh you know like an undergraduate essay or something you know uh they're studying nazi politics 101 you know um but but it, it is a, it's an attempt i think uh for themselves to prove themselves and to others that they're taking this seriously. And, and there's less space for bants um, because they, they have a desperate desire to be taken seriously. Um, and also, the, 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 like, uh, some of the forms of humour, it tends to kind of devolve into just, you know, often quite gross anti-Semitic material or, you know, fairly um, not the kind of stuff you could share with any degree of plausible deniability among your mates. 
even your mates might say, oh, that's that's a bit, you know, that's a bit much, uh, young Jacob. <laughs> another one, another name, and I'll say this is relevant because of the gun talk from before, that bloke James Buckle. Now, he's just associated or started Aussie Firearms United. Um, does that, you talked about guns before, do they got guns? Uh, yes. That's comforting to know. Is <laughs> that's good to know. You know what? I sleep safer at night as a as a white man. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're out, knowing that they're out there protecting you, Tom. Yeah, they're protecting my fucking pallid, golem esque white skin. Um, what about hey, what about Blair's another name? Blair Cottrell. So he's a former UPF Don Dada. We talked about this. Friend of Sky News, which I know you're 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 um about <laughs> reminding the public of quite frequently. Um what what's his role in all of this now? In terms of him also just as an aside on on Sky, um you know, it, it could be read as a dereliction of duty for them to have him on without knowing who he is, um, but they did. Uh, the producer of the show knew exactly who Cottrell was and wanted him mm. on the show. And they were testing the waters, I think. And there, there was at the time quite a backlash. This was going too far. You've pushed the Overton window too far on this occasion, chaps. So uh, needless to say, I think it'll be a while before Cottrell's invited back onto Sky. And he's, you know, he was spitting chips over that. It was like his, his big moment, you know, put on a suit, pose, uh, be a, you know, join the join the throngs on Sky, but that, that fell apart. Um, well, you've I got mean, all these fresh, illicit kind of like, you know, like cultural capital, you know, countercultural capital as someone who's been like banned from everything, but he's so banned from everything that he, he doesn't really have many forums through which he can tell everyone how banned he is. Yeah, I mean, he's more or less been confined to Gab and VK and a few other, you know, yeah. Telegram and on yeah. YouTube, I suppose. Um, but his, his audience has been much restricted. And he's largely, I mean, the frustration would be, you know, Gab is essentially Twitter for Nazis. So you're not telling, you know, Gab users anything they don't already know and accept. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's, he, he was, yes, he, he emerged out of National's Alternative, uh, helped establish the UPF was basically the leader of the UPF. Then when it dissolved, uh, became, and Sewell was his kind of sidekick during this period. Uh, It was clear that in that relationship, you know, Cottrell was the, uh, uh, you know, the main guy. Um, So, I mean, there's been, so he had an association with the lads, was certainly involved with it. He's not involved as much now. Uh, The reasons for that, um, I'm not entirely clear on. Uh, so there's been various rumours about Cottrell engaging in some bad behaviour uh, mm-hmm. and there being, you know, it's like, you know, in the early 70s there was a book published about the far right in Australia and New Zealand called Everyone Wants to Be Fearer. And it's quite an entertaining yeah. book and I you'll find it online. Um, but it is that case in a in these sorts of um, political groupings, it is the case that generally speaking, you know, there's going to be one guy who calls the shots. And I think for, and I think there was some disagreement about Cottrell wanting to pursue, still having the fantasy of becoming a, you know, um, mainstream in some sense. Uh, certainly that's how he's presented himself. He's, when I published uh, all the statements, the anti-Semitic statements and misogynist statements that he'd made over years, uh, on the blog uh, back in 2015, uh, we had a one, I think, minor uh, interaction on Facebook uh, where he popped up on the page and said, why are you calling me a Nazi? And I said, well, 
this is why I'm calling you a Nazi. Yeah. And he said, his response was, I neither confirm nor deny that I made any of those comments. Oh, shut um, up. I know. Shut up, you facile fucking. Just but, say but it. It was a years of just like, just say it. And it took him to get banned from everything. Before, like, well, even just now he's. Come, he's... come honest with themselves, you know? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a rational decision on his part and is on the part of other Nazis um, to be tagged with that label, you know, the quiet Australians, the ordinary mums and dads, they're not going to look upon that as being, a, you know, something in your favour. So It is you know, tactical. You're right. It's tactical and it's pragmatic. I mean, in anyway. my experience, the, um, you know, the, the number of Nazis who are willing to say I'm a Nazi is vanishingly small. And I think in memory I've only had one person uh, say, yes, I'm a fascist. Um, well, that you know, all, that agi- all that agitation towards, uh, you know, uh, I guess a, a ambient fascism or, you know, a, a, a state in which people are willing to vote fascism in relies on you hiding your true power levels, as they all say anyway, doesn't it? So, you know, yeah, I suppose that's textbook fascism is to not say you are one until you're you're able to say it while you're stringing everyone up, right? Yeah, that that's the smart move. Um, and yeah, I mean that, that 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 whole. I mean, it's also part of the uh, you know online culture and chan culture where um, you know there's a pleasure to be derived from engaging this kind of bullshit. You know, it's like uh, you know these crazy communists are calling me a Nazi, but I'm not a Nazi. But we're still going to kill the Jews, ha ha ha, sort of thing. You know, it's mm, like mm, it, it enter- they find it entertaining, and there's there, there's a certain audience for it. But after t- after a while, you know, like any joke, if it's repeated often enough, it, it loses its you know appeal, uh, its yeah. ability to generate laughs. It's kind of like yeah. Um, so mm. I think they kind of delight in that, and and also there's the willingness on the part of some you know, uh, within media and commentary, they, they envisage or they, um, they understand Nazis to be people in uniforms marching up and down the street screaming Heil Hitler. The ones there. Fascism is just the thing your granddad fought against, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's understood as an aesthetic and a fashion. It's not yeah. understood as yeah. an ideology. Yeah. And it's not ta- so it's not taken seriously. Um, you know, a fascist is informed by their ideas about the world and how they conceive of it and, that, and what they, how they want to reshape it. It doesn't matter mm. what they wear. You know? I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah you don't totally. need to have a swastika tattooed on your forehead, you know, to be a Nazi. Um, but even, as, you know, I, I've grappled with trying to communicate that to people who should know better in a way that makes them refrain from, you know, um, uh, you know, simply uh, willing to concede that people are Nazis if they're running around with, you know, screaming, sick Heil. It, it's kind of like a perennial frustration. It's tied into the, the associations of racism with ignorance rather than with power. Everyone's all much more comfortable with that characterisation of Nazis. Maybe the old context is the ones wearing the swastikas marching up and down. In the new context, they're the idiots with the swastika tattoos, um, you know, the, the, the boneheads out belting the piss out of people, um, whereas they can't understand the ideology divorce from all that and how actually 
actually it would be smarter for them all to wear suits. Yeah, yeah, dapper. Mm. You mentioned the Christchurch killer before Brenton Tarrant. Tom Sewell said he'd once invited Brenton Tarrant into the, the lad society that had conversations because Tarrant was, you know, around the, the nationalists or fascist traps. One thing I was really sweet, one thing I really like about fascists how they can never help themselves but, like, flexing and threatening a little bit. So, like, you know, we talked about how Tom Sewell was, to, to a certain degree, trying to avoid the limelight of the late society, but he still couldn't help himself in the wake of that to kind of threaten the mainstream media after Christchurch. You know, basically he, he said in his many words that if the government wouldn't let them pump weights and do Hitler together, then they would, you know, he inferred very clearly that they might have to resort to doing a Brenton Tarrant themselves. And, you know, we, we all knew what he meant. This is more of these power level and flexing obsessions. They can't help themselves, can they? Yeah, I mean, they're under pressure. And, I mean, part of it is insofar as what they're wanting to be and present themselves as being is staunch, you know, unlike the, the trimmers and the, the cowards, um, you know, we're the real deal, that does place particular obligations upon you if you come under scrutiny or under pressure. And it's kind of a model. You know, you never apologise, you never back down. Um, and and it's it's important both for to communicate that to the outside, to, you know, media and others, but also to message those within the group. If the, the leader can't afford to capitulate, they've got to be the strongest voice because if they don't, they're unable to impose discipline upon their own membership. Yeah, so, so someone else will take over this spot. Yeah. yeah, someone else who's more prepared to. And, and it forms a kind of dynamic. And, it, and it's it can be unhealthy in the sense that for the, for the organisation or dysfunctional in there's there can be a constant upping of the ante. Like, you know, um, someone can be, uh, you know, staunchly anti-Semitic. I hate the Jews. They're destroying our country. The next question becomes, well, what are you doing about it? You know? Okay, you've produced some stickers. You've you've uh, graphed the local synagogue. That's not enough. Um, and I, I think it's that kind of logic that helps to explain how uh, Tarrant uh, was propelled into the situation where having the opportunity, having the means, um, and and for various other reasons. I mean, I haven't read the report that was you know recently compiled on his crimes that may or may not be made public, which will give some kind of account of his psychological and political development. But it got to the point where um, it became obvious to him, or in his mind at least, if he was really going to establish himself as a bona fide you know warrior. Uh, he had to go and do this thing, and yeah. no one could possibly dispute his commitment following that. If you're prepared to go and kill a whole lot of people in pursuit of your politics, uh, no one could possibly dispute the seriousness of your commitment. And whether or yeah. not the the lads or whoever produce another kind of figure, well, is completely unknown, obviously, mm. um, but the problem is that there's a certain political dynamic at work which renders that outcome more likely that that's the danger even if you know some within the group you know would would um you know think twice or resile from that sort of thing um and, and it is a kind of in a sense um you know painting themselves into a corner uh where the only you know outcome is some kind of violent outburst and they do deploy that um you know it's part of the fascist mystique 
and what attracts young men, especially to it, you become someone nobody else wants to fuck with. Sackmaster, when we talk about these people, or when you do research into them or expose them, you know, it's not because we like gossip, is it? I mean, for me, it's because, you know, I believe people need to know. You know, this is a genuinely a growing threat. You know, why do you dedicate yourself to informing people? Well, um, it's a good question. Why do I bother? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But in terms of having an intent, like, you know, I was uh, doing this kind of thing before Reclaim emerged, but it was my opinion prior to that I saw, you know, the, the political environment was conducive to these kinds of political expressions. So sooner or later you had faltering steps through the ADL and so on, um, and in Melbourne they organised two fairly disastrous rallies. Uh, one of the people who attended that was uh, Philip Galea. Um, who yep. is now, I believe, awaiting sentencing for terrorist offences. Mm. Uh, he was planning on blowing up Trades Hall and, you know, various other left institutions in Melbourne. Yep. Um, so, you know, to find to discover him 10 years ago at an ADL rally was interesting. Um, but I, I guess the way I look at it is these sorts of ideas and movements in Australia have never really fully come to fruition. If you look over the longer historical period, one of the reasons for that is because the state has adopted many of these sorts of policies, the White Australia policy and so on, um, and it's a colonial settler state. So there are all these historical factors yeah. which have meant that in Australia, you know, the largest far-right movement was probably the New Guard in the 1930s. Um, and, and it was a mass movement which was uh, eclipsed um, for various reasons um, and, and was born out of anti-communist hysteria or anti-Bolshevik hysteria, um, concern over trade union activity and all the rest of it, um, and was, into, and was uh, you know, more or less a counter-revolutionary force. Um, the contemporary manifestations, you know, if you look at, at something like the Australia First Party, in many respects, it's old school labourism. It wants to, um, you know, it's an attenuated form of social democracy with a strong emphasis upon racial purity, basically. A return to the white Australia policy and the mythological Australia of the early 20th century is what they want. And they consciously disavow any association with, you know, German national socialism or Nazism. So the Jews yeah. are present, but on, on a much more um, reduced level. Um, But in terms of publishing the blog and and the rest, I mean, I don't, I think it would be profoundly mistaken to rely upon uh, the government or the state to uh, monitor or respond to these sorts of ideas and movements. I think that's not going to happen um, for various reasons. So my purpose has been to educate the public. And, And also over time, you know, I'm contacted by all sorts of different people, you know, from people who have, you know, um, witnessed racist content on Facebook or something and contact me and say, you know, someone's written this awful racist screed that's upset me, what can I do about it? Mm. Um, To others who are like, you know, my son, uh, you know, is uh, expressing interest in these groups. Um, So it's kind of like a public resource through which I attempt to, you know, and, and it's um, it's not locked behind, a, you know, a paywall. Um, it's it's something that I share. Um, I understand Nazis read it, you know, because they want to know what's going on as well. 
Um, but in, in that sense, like any public resource, it's available to anyone to consult and to use. And Totally, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, um, given the prevailing uh, ecological, political and social conditions, um, you know, the future is in a sense grim. Um, there's going to be all sorts of conflicts emerge in Australia and elsewhere. Um, and in those circumstances where you have, you know, chronic economic dysfunction and social dysfunction, it's in those environments, generally speaking, that these sorts of groups their ideologies, their movements can obtain an audience. So it's about uh, limiting their impact while also trying to articulate some more life-affirming alternatives to people who are, for whatever reason, uh, angry, upset, uh, angry and confused and are looking for something to explain the world to them so that they can act upon it in a way that, you know, secures their future and that of their children and so on. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, if what I've done through what I've, you know, published and so on uh, is inform, you know, a larger um, uh, audience, you know, who these guys are and, and also I guess to expose some of this stuff as in, yeah, they do make these calculations about how they present themselves to the public. Uh, Nazis are incorrigible liars. Um, you know, and, and that's that's annoying. Yeah, and 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 I guess over time I've wanted to, to the extent that I have some um, authority, it's based on a lot of research, and I keep the receipts. You know, so I try to be very careful about what I present, and try and ensure that what I present can be verified. Um, and 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 the other thing, I guess the. the um, you know, along with that is the fact that if you look at the Australian media landscape, um, you know, it's underfunded, um, journalists are overworked, there's nobody in Australia whose beat is dedicated to this sort of thing. Um, so it kind of, it, you, know, in a, in a, you know, to put it in a, um, market terms, I'm, I'm plugging a gap in the market, I suppose. And, and also when I'm, yeah. And also when I began, I'm not doing it so that I can, you know, turn around and urge people to vote for Labor or, um, you know, whatever. Um, mm. You know, it's it's embedded in a more radical conception of politics um, and, and also informed by the fact that whenever these groups establish themselves and flourish, people like myself and others on the political left become targets. And, and this is direct physical uh, abuse and intimidation. So I, I, it's self-defence in that sense. And it's notable, you know, um, you know, Gilly has been convicted now, but he was convicted of conspiring to blow up people like me. So it's both about uh, educating the public, you know, people who might have an interest in these things, uh, but also, in a sense, protecting myself and uh, other, you know, colleagues and comrades from... Uh, <clears throat> attacked by these sorts of people and groups. Yeah, you provide this an incredible service. And I think this gets said of the right far too much, this kind of rhetoric and not nearly enough of the left. But I, I, I want to 
acknowledge that the existence of your consistent work over time not only has been a thorn in the side of the far right of many wins and, and, and you know, a conduit for information about them to, 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 to breach out into the mainstream when journalists access it or, or what have you, but it's also it's made anti-fascist. It, it definitely altered my journey, which was headfirst because I was doing dumb anti-fascist satire shit right from the start and, you know, got way more than I bargained for right away. But, you know, not just me, it definitely influenced my journey, but I know it's created um, more informed would-be, and you know, foundling anti-fascists than, than certainly there ever would have been their audience. So, you know, for that and for a million other things, I thank you. What I do not thank you for is these fucking mustics. I'm on my third one. I'm going to have the third one now. What do people do if they want to read more? And where can they go and read more about them and your work? And, and do you have anything else to plug, mate? Uh, yeah, well, um, I have uh, the blog, uh, slackbastard at anarchobase.com. Mm. Um, I have a Facebook page and a Twitter account and a Patreon. Um, I do a weekly radio show on 3CR in Melbourne. Um, I've only, to date, there's one um, academic contribution uh, on the Australian far right, which was published a couple of years ago um, by Oxford, uh, which is a, you know, if people want a more academic account or scholarly account of the far right in Australia, mm. uh, that's been published. I think you'll find it somewhere online. Uh, I'm working on a, a longer book with some others, which is a, a history of the far right in Australia. Yeah, which I'm super excited about, actually, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you've you've said um, earlier that you know, um, and I think it's great if I've inspired others to more seriously engage in and think about these things. That's terrific. I should add that over time, um, you know, I do, I have cultivated an audience, and there are there's lots of work to do, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, there yeah. have been uh, contributions by others. Um, many of whom I'm unable to name uh, because they've wanted to retain their anonymity, but I thank them. Um, some of these people are within these groups. Uh, some of these people have left these groups. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of reasons why someone might uh, come to engage with these groups and express concern over them. Um, and I guess over time, as I've established a, a kind of presence, you know, those people are more likely to reach out and to, to you know, uh, get in touch. So that's that's been the other kind of um, element. I mean, the, the, the kind of drawback, I suppose, is uh, for me is it's very time-consuming. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, not especially rewarding in other respects. So the main, I guess, reward I get is knowing that others find it useful and it inspires them to... Um, you know, uh, contribute in in whatever way they can, and there's lots of people. And I think you're uh, you've made a contribution, and I think that's been really useful. Um, and and I guess the the you know the blog allows me a certain freedom to write about these things and provide some you know uh, the facts, but also do so in a way that I hope is engaging through you know um, engaging in I suppose ridicule and and, and subversive forms of humour. I think. One of the things that fascists dread is being not taken seriously and having their claims to being, you know, this, that or the other subverted. And, and so mm. humour is actually can be quite a useful political weapon. 
And if I was appreciative of the way that you write content about the far right, and there's a lot of anti-racist or left or anti-fascist people who who you can tell that when they write, they aren't thinking that fascists and nationalists will be in the audience who'll be reading it. And that's for obvious reasons that's never the case with you. I know it's obviously your subject matter, but I, I really wish that people would take some subtle cues and, and if they're reading your content, do consider, think about it in that light. Think about what it is to write when you know that the subject matter or that the nationalists who are in that audience will actually be casting their eyes over it. You know what I mean? These people who, whose agenda is actively against you. I wish it was something that other people, you know, took into consideration a bit more. I think it would uh, subtly influence the way with which people would talk about nationalists. Perhaps they'd spend a little bit less time gassing them up um, you know, and inflating their role because I agree with you because I think reduction and mockery is really, really important. So you talked about all the other tons of people that that are useful but who for whatever reason can't put their, their name, let alone their face to it. Now, you don't have your face out there but you do have your name and you've got a very established profile. You know what it is to get fucking, you know, hassled and stalked by Nazis over many, many years. I've also been through all that stuff. But I always conceptualise myself as just being one cog you know, healthy, functioning, anti-fascist machine. You know, and mine might be being a foghorn and fucking talking shit and taking the piss sometimes, and you know, as well as all the content and what have you. But I can't even do what I do properly if it weren't for all those other fucking people who who, who aren't as public and aren't as out there. And, and I think also thinking about things in that way is, you know, and at least acknowledging all their work is a helpful uh, antidote to becoming like a fucking saviour type figure. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, if anyone doesn't know it already, your contributions to anti-fascism couldn't possibly be overstated. So, you know, thank you for coming on. And um, Thanks for having us, Tom. Uh, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I got through three must sticks on this one. Um, it, you've taken one for the team, or three, actually. So, you know, you've met my demands, my, my you know, uh, you know, burdensome demands, so I thank you. Yeah, well, I don't thank you, but I do <laughs> thank you for the conversation. So, Bastard, thank you so much, mate. Sweet. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Pork and Feed the Birds. If you support the work that I do, uh, please support me on Patreon. Uh, chuck us a clam or two if you can. I would love it. I would be. I would beg and scrape and bow at your feet. Um, I will kiss your feet. Calm down, don't say that. Um, Patreon.com slash Tom Tanneke. I, uh, I live in your service. Well, I will do if you support me on Patreon. <laughs> no, seriously, I do do a lot of work um, in terms of all the content that I put out um, and also all the, the, I suppose, the research and, and the, the auxiliary stuff and activism that goes into it. So, you know, if you can support me, then I'd really appreciate it. But again, as I always say, um, th that support only comes second in my mind to to supporting any of the good and decent activist causes um, that, that that I ask you to first and foremost support that, you know, usually I foghorn about on my page, so... Um, only if you've got spare clams, only if you're rolling in it, only if you're diving into a pool of gold coins like the DuckTales intro. Knock, knock. Who's there? Mons pubis. Mons pubis who? Mons pub is on fire, bruh.
you dropped your fatty bombatty. Oh no, jar, have mercy. Oh, that's terrible. 